I remember in the ambulance, the doctor was like, oh, do you want some morphine? I was like, nah, I can't have that. I'm racing in two days' time. And then they did the CT scan and they, the doctor came in and said what I'd done and I was just like, well, all right, you know, whack it in me. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say. Yo, welcome to episode 139 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about morphine. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash velocity. Now, let's get straight underway into a performance probe, and probe number one is called race weight perceptions of elite female road cyclists so this was a study that was published in a journal and it investigated the satisfaction of elite female cyclists with their body weight in the context of race performance and the magnitude of body weight manipulation so female competitors in the australian national road cycling championships and the oceana championships completed a questionnaire to identify current body weight body weight fluctuations perceived ideal body weight for performance frequency of body weight consciousness and weight loss techniques so the results all but one cyclist reported that female cyclists are a weight conscious population and 54 percent reported having a desire to change body weight at least once weekly 62 percent reported that their current body weight was not ideal for performance their perceived ideal body weight was 1.6 kilograms plus or minus 1.6 kilograms less than their current body weight and 73 percent reported that their career lowest body weight was either beneficial or extremely beneficial for performance 65 percent reported successfully reducing body weight in the previous previous 12 months with a mean loss of 2.4 kilograms plus or minus a kilogram. The most common weight loss technique was reduced energy intake, and this was 76% of the riders that filled in the survey. Five cyclists, 14%, had been previously diagnosed as having an eating disorder by a physician. So what's the conclusion? Elite Australian female cyclists are a weight-conscious population who may not be satisfied with their body weight, leading into a major competition, and in some cases are frequently weight-conscious. My guess is a survey on all female cyclists and all male cyclists would yield very, very similar results. Because even when you hit race weight, your attention shifts from getting down to there to staying down. It is really a never-ending struggle. Probe 2, Whippet's top three tips for sprinting. Walter Whippet is a sprinter for the Drapak professional cycling team. He's notched up a couple of high-profile wins in 2015, including a win at the Tour Down Under, a couple of wins and podiums at the Tour of Korea, and three podiums at the Tour of Cali. He's got some very basic tips that are going to remind us of what to keep in mind when we are sprinting. The first one, sprinting is all about positioning in your final kilometers. Yes, this is super obvious, but it's a very good reminder because the more energy you save going into those final kilometers by being in a better position the more power you have to do the sprint in the last two or three hundred meters positioning is about thinking fast and being able to move around 
There's no way you have time to recover from any additional bursts or sprints because if you're sprinting even for, say, 15 seconds, you need five minutes to replenish that system so you can, again, go for another 15 seconds. So you've got to save the energy when it comes to positioning and not leave yourself with any gaps that you need to chase after. The second bit of advice, some sprinters prefer higher cadence while others use more their strength. So... You need to decide whether you use strength or its cadence. However you generate your power, you need to figure that out and then tweak that approach so you know exactly what gear to be in when you have to start your sprint. And the third and final one, it's all eyes on that finish. He says that this is the most important one for him. And it's all about the focus required because after a long day of riding in the bunch, maybe your races aren't as long as the pros, but it all comes down to 10 or 15 seconds. So you've got to stay focused until you've crossed that line. So don't touch the brakes when you see the finish line. It's all eyes on that finish and you've got to put everything into this. He does go on to say that this is hard to practice because everything that's happening in a race makes it more difficult to get focused. How are you going to replicate that in training? It's more just about racing as much as you can and going for the win as many times as you can. There you have it, a quick refresher on what's important in a sprint. How is your sprint coming along though? done a lot of work in the gym I could pretty much get her to shift our house on her own I'm usually the weak link this is Mark Chadwick Anna Mears's husband and if you don't know that name take a listen to her feats in the gym and take a guess at what she does she can squat 145 kilos she can single leg press 235 kilos jump on a box a meter and ten high that's pretty cool (laughs) she is a track cycling sprinter a consistent performer on the world stage and one hell of a box jumper if you don't think that a box jump of 110 centimeters is high anna is 165 centimeters tall and weighed 70 kilograms at the time can you jump two-thirds of your height from a standing start This is Anna adjusting her plastic shin and knee guards ahead of jumping the 110 centimetres. It's training like this, off the bike, that makes the difference to strength athletes in our sport, but much of the work of moving from the development level to the elite level is done in the gym. One thing that you do notice when trawling clips like this is the speed that most of this work is done at. It's fast, explosive, high-velocity movements. Why? Because if all you do is slow and heavy movements, you get strong and slow. 
you need to do most of your work at race speeds using submaximal loads at high speeds. Anna is a track cyclist and most track events are speed endurance, meaning that to win, you need to go faster for longer than the other rider. To have speed endurance, first you need the speed, and speed is hard to train and takes a long time. The other element is you need to get up to that speed, and you need acceleration, and that means power. Power, of course, equals force times velocity. The velocity or speed part you get on the track, the strength and force you get in the gym. For example, low cadence power of approximately 0 to 120 RPM can be trained in the gym, as well as on the bike, but mostly in the gym. But high cadence power of approximately 120 to 200 RPM is too fast to do in the gym, and you generally need to be motor pacing to increase that, or at least someone faster than you breaks the wind so you can go over speed. And this is usually done in road races. When we talk about velocity on the bike, we're talking about leg speed, also known as cadence or RPM. Velocity doesn't only relate to on-the-bike training, though. In track sprinting terms, when strength is a focused numbers on the track, this is watts, aren't as important as numbers in the gym. We're talking weight-lifted or force-produced numbers. When the focus shifts to power or speed, the gym work is backed off in order to get the numbers needed on the track. Force plate power profiling is not in common use outside of these strength-related disciplines of our sport, namely track sprinters and BMX riders. This is because strength and time in the gym is the base for these riders compared to the aerobic capacity that's needed for the majority of other cycling disciplines. Force plate power profiling includes a measure called peak rate of force development, RFD, and peak concentric force measured on a force platform is an excellent way to track changes in force production off the bike. So what is RFD? Muscles do not immediately switch from expressing zero force to expressing maximum force. The speed at which force increases from zero to maximum is called the rate of force development. The rate of force development is commonly tested dynamically using the concentric-only jump and the concentric-only jump squat. This is only measuring the up part of a jump or jump squat, which is actually extremely relevant to sprinting because in training, the phase from the floor to full hip and knee extension is where the gains come from. What happens after that doesn't matter, so you can do a deadlift and you can throw the bar anywhere you want and you're still getting a training effect. And this is what RFD is measuring. This obviously requires specialized equipment, and you would have heard me mention before a force plate. A force plate is the sports science industry standard for measuring force in sporting movements. To describe it, it's basically a plate or a platform installed flush into the floor, and you can cover it with any surface. This plate takes the signal from the movement, anything from jumping to balance-related movements, although there are a couple of different types for each of those. It amplifies this signal and then converts it into a digital form, which is graphed on a computer. The output is readings of power and, of course, force. As you can imagine, these are expensive and not very portable. So a force plate may not be available to you, but this testing can be done with specialized lower cost devices that use accelerometers or position transducers to calculate force in cases where force plates are not available in the training environment. 
The lower cost devices are called bar speed trackers and include products like the Tendo unit at 1600 USD or the Aware, which measures similar power velocity metrics for 2500 AUD. These devices typically are linear position transducers. Linear position transducers consist of a central processing unit that attaches to the resistance training equipment, such as a barbell, via a retractable measuring cable and via a data display unit or a smartphone to measure bar speed velocity. A key feature of linear position transducer devices is they display live velocity-based feedback after each rep. We are now starting to see lower cost consumer facing products enter the market, products like the Gym Watch and a product that I've been trialing called the Push Band. These are examples of accelerometer based alternatives to the linear position transducers and force plates. There are limitations to this style of measurement device, which I will go into. But first, I want to talk about velocity based training or VBT for short. VBT is the backbone to these devices and the usefulness of this training methodology on your training is a major consideration when deciding whether to purchase this or not. So let's go take a look at VBT and then see if the push band can match the technical requirements of getting this training right. Velocity-based training is a new way to determine load for strength training. The link between riding a bike at 120 plus RPM and this training won't be evident just yet, but stick with me because we will get there. In some ways, VBT is an evolution of percentage-based training, PBT, where load is determined by a percentage of your RPM. This is what I currently use with my athletes. But PBT is risky. It's a risky prospect for a coach and an athlete. First, when you're trying to get an accurate one rep max at the start of a season or a phase before the athlete has had a chance to prepare physically for the load. I've had this dilemma when prescribing a one rep max test to my athletes. Ultimately, I do believe the body will self-regulate away from injury, but there is always that risk there. This leads us to problem two, though, getting a real max rep figure. This is hard to do and it can skew the entire phase of training preceding testing and day-to-day because it's not possible to determine objectively if the weight is being moved at the appropriate load for that given day as strength varies from day to day. In a paper from the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association, Jovanovic and Flanagan used formulas to estimate a daily one rep max through the load velocity profile. You don't have to know about that, but they noted an approximately 18% difference above or below the previously tested one rep max, meaning that there was a 36% range around the previously tested one rep max. So the one rep max is not foolproof. By the way, this is an excellent article, which I'm going to touch on later because it has some great practical recommendations for VBT. Velocity-based training makes it possible to train much more specifically at different velocities because different velocities equal different qualities. Here is Brian Mann, the go-to VBT guy on the Pacey Performance Podcast with a breakdown of these velocities and their original references. Every trait has got a different velocity, right? So if you're looking at um, a, let's just go with some of the main ones that people usually look at. So strength speed for a standard lift, like a, I I say standard, like squat, bench press, deadlift, et cetera, 
Strength speed, you'd be looking at about 0.75 to 1.0 meters per second. That was corroborated not only by, uh, well, that initially was found by Roman, I believe, and in the management and training of the weightlifter. And it's been corroborated by many different people since then. Interestingly enough, Joseph and Jindaka, probably butchering that. I apologize because this <laughs> you're over in Europe, so you guys actually know how to say those things. Uh, if it was Smith, man, I'm good. Yeah, you go. <laughs> uh, they found the exact same velocities, even though they referred to them as a different name. It was velocity load and load velocity, or load velocity was strength speed. Then uh, Sanchez, Medina, et cetera, they found the exact same velocity. So I thought that was, it's like, hey, that's cool. They're right on. This is from the you know, 1960s and the Soviets, and they're finding the same things today. Uh, then there's speed strength, and that is uh, strength speed could be can, uh, defined as strength conditions of speed. So you're moving, trying to move a heavy weight as fast as you can but you're never really going to move it super fast. Uh, speed strength is speed and conditions of strength, or you're moving a lighter a lighter weight faster, so speed and conditions of strength. Um, you're looking at like about 1.1 to 1.3, 1.4, depending on the movement. Uh, Olympic lifts have got their own movements or velocities. They should all be, you know, they'll all, all be speed strength. Then above that 1.3, 1.4-ish, you're really starting to look at starting strength, as Anatoly Bondarchuk defined it, where you're moving, you're trying to overcome inertia very rapidly. So it's very, very low intensity, low external resistance, super high velocity. So starting from a dead stop at like 1.4 meters per second. Going on the slower end, you've really got accelerative strength, which is about 0.5 to 0.75 meters per second. And uh, below that, you get into the circumax and absolute strength. So down to about 0.3 meters per second, according to, I believe it was an Ischiro study, uh, for squat and 0.15 meters per second for bench press. And it's all dependent upon the amplitude of motion. You've got a movement that moves through a greater range of motion, or you got somebody who's like seven feet tall. Their velocity ranges might vary a little bit, but it all, you know, ballpark about the same. As a recap, the traits developed using VBT can be categorized as absolute strength, which is under 0.5 meters a second, accelerative strength at 0.75 to 0.05 meters a second, strength speed at 1 to 0.75 meters a second, speed strength at 1.3 to 1 meter per second, and starting strength at greater than 1.3 meters a second. These are referred to as velocity zones and become the guide for your training. Speed of movement is something that coaches have known about for a long time, and this is where the benefit of VBT comes into its own. Take the single leg press, the Australian track sprint team's bread and butter. Different foot and hip positions for different phases of the pedal stroke are used, whether it's standing or seated, etc. And they also use high-speed video to match joint angles and velocities for each rider. For power, they will throw the sled as far as they can at different percentages of max to match up with different muscle contraction velocities for different phases of the acceleration and different cadences. While there is some technology involved in this process, it's hard to quantify the speed of the sled through each rep. Using a measuring device and the velocity zone accelerative speed, you would know that in order to train the quality that you need to move the sled at 
between 0.75 and 0.05 metres a second. They also do a lot of single leg plyos on boxes, chairs, bungee sleds, etc. during speed phases. And this is where you could use the speed strength velocity zone and aim for 1.3 to 1 metres a second in these movements. But it's not only in the actual workout, it can be used as a way of monitoring or checking your progression. And here is one practical application from the Jovanovic and Flanagan paper, which the paper, by the way, is called Research Applications of Velocity-Based Strength Training, and it's a great read. I highly recommend it. I will link to it in the show notes. But the practical recommendation of estimating one rep maxes from sub-maximal loads is absolutely brilliant it's a body saver a time saver and a mind saver as mentioned earlier one rep max testing has its risks and downsides avoiding these would not only help save the athlete from injury though it enables safer and consistent testing across a season no matter where the athlete is in their training phase so the recommendation is measuring mean concentric velocity at four to six increasing intensities of load ranging from 30 to 85% of actual or estimated one rep max to estimate the load velocity profile. To estimate a one rep max for an individual, you need to know the minimal velocity threshold of the exercise, which could be assessed through traditional one rep max test or reps to failure test. The minimal velocity threshold, as explained by Jovanovic and Flanagan, is the specific velocity that maximal load one rep max attempts are associated with. One rep max velocity or the minimal velocity threshold, MVT. The MVT is the mean concentric velocity produced on the last successful repetition of a set to failure performed with maximal lifting effort. Okay, that sounded like a whole bunch of gobbledygook, and it is. Basically, there is a velocity number that applies to the last successful effort in a set of weights that you don't complete. So you take that number, and that number appears in the research to remain stable across different loads. So over a season, when you get better and you're adding more weight you can take that number and that number will remain consistent. So this is where you can actually extrapolate from that number based on the velocities that you lifted before you got to that point and you can actually figure out your one rep max without having to go to fail or having to do a one rep max effort. Because using velocities from sub-maximal loads and your known minimal velocity threshold, a regression equation of the line can be used to predict or estimate current one rep max strength levels. That's just one practical application though, but I want to move into something that only popped into my world once I started digging into this stuff a little deeper. And this is a new style of periodization, or more accurately, a new style to me of progression that is not linear. It's called Auto-Regulatory Progressive Resistance Exercise, or APRE. 
And it was raised in Brian Mann's interview on the Pacey Performance Podcast, where he went on to explain it as the APRE is based on adjustment charts that state if you perform this number of repetitions, you are to increase or decrease a certain amount of weight. This can fluctuate from session to session. In cycling, it's not going to work for every phase of weight training. That's not to say it's not useful for the hypertrophy and strength phases of your training. There are three APRE programs, one for absolute strength development, one for hypertrophy, and one for speed strength development. If you combine VBT with APRE, sorry, I just... I had to do that, but you have a formidable framework for fine-tuning your off-the-bike strength and speed training. As an example of APRE, here's how the strength program works. So you do set one, which is six reps at 50% of your three-rep max. You do set two, and it's three repetitions of 75% of your three-rep max. Set three is 100% of your three-rep max to failure. The last two sets of each are done to failure, so recovery time is paramount here. But if on set three, you can only do one or two reps, you decrease the three-rep max by 2.5 to 4.5 kilograms. If on set three, you do three to four reps, you leave the weight the same for set four. And on set three, if you can do five or more reps, then you increase the weight two and a half to seven kilograms and do set four to failure with the newly adjusted weight. And the newly adjusted weight is the new three rep max for next week's sets. This can be used for squats, for deadlifts, any big moves that you do. This might not actually mean anything to you. I can understand that. But the benefit is the ability to adjust based on how you are feeling on the day. Because like Henry Rollins says, the iron never lies to you. And this allows you to make gains when you're feeling strong and avoiding injury when you're feeling not so strong. Okay, I know I've thrown a whole bunch of new information at you and a lot of it is not going to stick Here's my breakdown as to where I see this as a valuable addition to any cyclist training. When we are trying to train either strength or power, there are elements of those that we can do off the bike. If we are going to look at what type of programs we would use off the bike to develop those, then we can use the system mentioned here, the APRE. The APRE helps you from session to session ensure that you're maximizing the weight that you use for each session. It will change, it won't necessarily be you'll set a one rep max and use a percentage of those and that's a linear progression. It will be more that you just adjust from day to day depending on how strong you actually feel. If we wanna then optimize the session that we're doing, that's where velocity-based training comes into it. So if we are training strength or speed or power, then we're using a specific velocity for each of those movements every time we lift up a weight to ensure that we're getting the best result possible. It's not always about just adding weight. It is about the movement and how fast that movement is and how that relates to the quality that you want to train. So if that gives you a better idea, then you can go back and listen to what we've been speaking about and pull apart the different bits so you can put it together. And you'll be using a couple of weight programs that cyclists are not using at the moment. Coming up, a detailed look into the push band and a few surprises about its functionality 
after this word from our sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Sprint Faster in 4 Weeks, one of Semipro Cycling's new 4-week training plans which are designed for cyclists looking to inflict maximum pain on their fellow riders. The 4-week plans are specific to a limiter and help you focus on one targeted area of performance. The structured training in the 4-week plans will help you sharpen your edge for a big race or sportif. Our sprint training plan will help you channel your inner speed and focus on shorter bursts of pure speed to help you close gaps and attack with power. It is available in two options. Number one, as a downloadable PDF or number two, preloaded into the online training and analysis software, Cycling Analytics. These plans have a couple of bonuses, one being connected to a forum to help you answer your training questions and the other you'll just have to find out. Go to semiprocycling.com and click on the training plan link in the top right-hand corner to buy. Now, the tech hacks and product section, I'm going to continue with the velocity training theme by reviewing the push band. I have been using the band over the past few months, and this is my take on the product, especially for cyclists. The band itself is worn on the forearm. It measures the velocity of the movement that we've been talking about. And if you input the exercise and the weight, it can give you an estimation of power generated as well as peak and average speed of the lift. It will also give you an overview of total energy expenditure during a workout as well as total tonnage. It will also track personal records. I gotta say, it's not magic though. You do have to identify the exercise, which has been included in the phone app as a recognized exercise, including manually adding the weight that you'll lift. I have no problem with this as I'm doing a static program, but if you were doing something a bit more active like a Metcon or a CrossFit style type of workout, it won't work for that. The band itself is not a bad piece of kit. It seems sturdy enough. The main unit is made out of plastic. The stitching on the band is a little wonky. To me, it does look like a first run. The web app, this is where you write your programs to be pushed to the mobile app. The mobile app, this is the place where I've spent most of my time. So I'll break it down just a little further. So we start with the cons. It doesn't track all of the exercises I do. A note on this, it may have them in the system and will record reps and weight, but not the other metrics. There's a time delay between pressing the button on the band and the response of the app. So sometimes I've pressed it twice and I've moved on accidentally, which is another con because once you go forward, you cannot go back and add things in. There is an extensive library of exercises, yet I can't see them when I'm in the app. If I've got a new exercise in there and I want a refresher, I can't actually go in and see it just before I'm about to do the exercise. The other thing is that it's reliant on a phone or an iPad or a tablet of some sort. 
and it's connected via Bluetooth. And the Bluetooth range is about 10 meters, which sounds like a lot. But if you're getting weights from the other side of the gym, then you have to take your phone with you. Otherwise, the Bluetooth connects. So not realizing this the first time, I couldn't get the band to work and I just put it away because it was too annoying. Now I have to take the phone with me and put it on the weight recording screen so I don't accidentally click through to the next set because you can't go back. Okay, so enough grumbling on the UI of an app. I want to talk about talk, the missing metric. It was promised in the initial campaign and promotional materials. And the reason that I'm disappointed is because talk is a common language between power meters and strength training. It's not just about speed. I subscribe to the talk work of Alan Cousins, and he mentions power does not stand in isolation when designing workouts for fast twitch hypertrophy. I asked Push directly why the change of mind and got this response. We discussed with various coaches and athletes and found that the torque metric didn't fit the system holistically. I honestly don't know what that means. Didn't fit what system? The concept of torque is a foundation of human movement and is a core principle in physical therapy, personal training, and weightlifting. All movement generates torque to varying degrees, and in reality, it's what makes the world of biomechanics tick. The reason it is important in training fast twitch fibers is because fast twitch fibers do not require high movement speeds in order to be recruited. They do, however, require relatively high levels of torque. So I have to continue manually calculating this, and this is an absolute pain in the ass. Also, it doesn't record deadlifts. Something about the noise from the racking and deracking of the bar. Regarding recording deadlifts, they say that some exercises are tougher to track than others, especially deadlifts and rows. That sucks. Deadlifts are an important exercise for me and my athlete, so it is a large setback. The other question on my mind is, mainly because cycling has been a device-heavy training ground for a long time, is the accuracy of the push band. This or any unit that measures metrics relies on accuracy and precision. This awareness is leading to a change in mindset for power meter measurement where it once was and still is accepted that the accuracy of the power meter might fall within a 5% range and this becomes an issue when comparing data between different devices whether this is a testing situation or simply just buying a new product for your bike. So this becomes a question when looking at any measurement device, especially ones that are in the consumer space because we have seen activity trackers being pulled apart for questionable accuracy. Are you happy with accuracy that may not be comparable to real-world numbers? Accuracy being the closeness of a measurement to the true value. How is the accuracy of the push band? I don't know. Second up, let's talk about precision. Precision is the closeness of agreement amongst a set of results. How is the precision of the push band? I don't know. Okay. I know I've overwhelmed you again, so what's my final verdict? Other than the fact that it's another device to worry about, which means battery charging, band, phone, remembering to bring the thing, getting it to pair before the workout, so far it's been useful for the basics, keeping a copy of my program, recording my reps, and keeping me somewhat more accountable. An interesting side note here is that I've used it, say, 15 times, and I don't have one complete set of data from the workout. 
for all the reasons mentioned in the con section and things like not always reliable in counting reps. Sets of 10 pull-ups, I may get two or three counted or sometimes it goes the other way and adds an extra. I just discovered that if you want to do push-ups or pull-ups, I should move the band above my elbow which doesn't make it too simple to have to remember that. So do you need a 189 USD unit to record your reps? A pad and pencil will work just as well. But something like the Atlas can do that and looks to be more specific for that purpose or the Beast, which has one thing in common with the expensive units, immediate feedback with each rep. This is displayed on either an iPad or a standalone unit and this would be much more helpful in the push when you're dialing in the velocity of each rep and allowing for changes mid-set rather than waiting to see the data post-set and trying to remember which rep was good and which was bad. Immediate feedback can also tell when to stop to avoid injury as one rep can be enough to do some damage. The Beast is a little more expensive for this privilege though at 250 euros. So do I recommend you buy one? No. Not until you have a solid use case for velocity training and until the unit is proven and the shortcomings mentioned in the entire system are sorted out and possibly they add talk. And now to that quote from the top of the show, it's Geraint Thomas from Team Sky talking about the crash that led him to having his spleen removed. I had my spleen out, so I've got a big scar down there. Uh, that was in Sydney in Australia and we were just riding along there was like a big corrugated metal iron thing in the road and the guys in front of me didn't see it. He rode over it, flicked up into my front wheel, stopped me dead, fell on my handlebars, you know, the, the stack on your stem? Yeah. That ruptured my spleen and it was intensive care for maybe just over a week, eight days. I remember in the ambulance, the doctor was like, oh, do you want some morphine? I was like, Man, I can't have that, I'm racing in two days' time. And then they did the CT scan and they, the doctor came in and said what I'd done and I was just like, well, all right. You know, whack it in me <laughs> but uh he actually said oh you've ruptured your spleen and if it keeps bleeding you're gonna die and i was just like well what are you gonna do about it it started bleeding again and they they whipped it out and uh dave b flew my mum and dad out and uh that was a pretty scary time how's, how's it going back into the punch it was fine actually i never really crossed my mind again it just sort of you just crack on with it and, and you get going and that adrenaline's going and you've got a job to do and yeah, it was, uh, it was okay. Nasty, 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 nasty. Garrett has had a good and not so good run this year. His latest result was second at the Tour de Suisse. So no doubt he's going to play a big role in bringing Froome Dog home at the Tour. And that's it. You've been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash velocity to find any links used in this week's episode. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. Through the years, I have combined meditation, action, and the iron into a single strength. I believe that when the body is strong, the mind thinks strong thoughts. Time spent away from the iron makes my mind degenerate. I wallow in a thick depression. My body shuts down my mind. The iron is the best antidepressant I have ever found. There is no better way to fight weakness than with strength. Once the body and mind have been awakened to their true potential, it's impossible to turn back. The iron never lies to you. You can walk outside and listen to all kinds of talk. 
get told that you're a god or a total bastard. The iron will always kick you to the real deal. The iron is the great reference point, the all-knowing perspective giver. Always there like a beacon in the pitch black. I have found the iron to be my greatest friend. It never freaks out on me, never runs. Friends may come and go, but the 200 pounds is always 200 pounds.